Blackbeard, Captain Kidd, Black Sam Bellamy, and Bonnie. And then we have Jack Sparrow, Captain Hook, Long John Silver, Dread Pirate Roberts. Why do we tend to romanticize pirates? Is it the adventure? Danger? About buried treasure? Or exploration? I think I know why, because I recently read True Account Hannah Mazarie's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. And the verdict? Well, it was a fun read. I finished it in two evenings. The author is Catherine Howe. She's making her second appearance on the show. She's co-authored two books with Anderson Cooper, and she's written numerous fiction titles, including this new release, A True Account. This book happens to have an economics edge to it in places, and I asked Catherine, can we talk about the business of pirating? After a resounding yes, I don't think we need to abandon ship. I don't think we need to batten down the hatches. I'm Mark Gandy for Sailful Bookshelf. My visit with Catherine Howe is coming up next. Catherine Howe has been super busy these days. She's co-authored Aster. Her second book with Anderson Cooper came out two months ago. A True Account was just released, and she has another nonfiction book coming out on pirates in 2024. But this book is fiction, and if we don't count The Phoenix Project, this is only my second interview involving fiction. And I told Catherine I might be a little wobbly, on this conversation. Catherine, I'm this big, dumb finance guy, and you're going to have to help me out. So this is the second fiction book we've done. I do want to do more. I really do. But you're going to have to help me out because I don't know if I'm a good interviewer or fiction people, but again, you're only my second. So do you mind kind of helping me a little bit in this conversation? It's my absolute pleasure, but I think you're being unnecessarily self-deprecating, Mark. Well, I will say this. My my wife and I, we have an informal book club. We mm-hmm. we don't we read independent of one another, and then when we both get done, we'll come and talk about the books. So we read a book by I think her first name is Kirsten, and she's very famous. She wrote a book called The Four Winds. And, and the book was so good. It is is based back in the uh, depression, the the Dust Bowl. It was so good. I I wanted to see her in an interview, and I thought the interviewer did a great job because she didn't ask her about the plot. They just started mm-hmm. talking, and she kind of let it. So I'm, I'm having this vision that you'll be like her, uh, <laughs> that you're going to kind of just lead this thing. And I just no pressure, but no and, and I got to go. Uh huh. Uh huh. That that's good. Well. I want to say that and I'm not just saying this. I read recently The Lincoln Highway. Loved the book. But it took me about 10 days to read it. Uh, I read The Grapes of Wrath because I read this book uh, called The Four Winds. I wanted to follow it up. So I finally read, and I do like John Steinbeck. Well, that took me over a week. Well, then I get to your book. As I'm prepping for this, I read it in two evenings. I re- and even. <laughs> That's music to my ears. In, really evening, that. in evening number one, I read about eight chapters. There's, I think there's 12 chapters in the book, and mm-hmm. I may be off one. 
And I read the rest the next evening, but chapter one is just like, I mean, it's like the action starts immediately, <laughs> like a, a hanging. But let, 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 let's save this. So I just want—that's my compliment to you on well, this. Thank you. I'm, it was, I'm really touched. There's, was, there's nothing I like better than the idea that people might lose track of time when they're reading a story that I've written. Well, so thank you. You, yeah, you will lose sleep because, uh, especially if you get started late in the evening, it's like this is really good. Real quickly. At least in my copy, of course, I got to read the uh, the media copy uh, mm-hmm. before it goes back. I'm so old. I don't <laughs> think you are. But didn't they used to call them rough cuts? Uh, now, um, well, they still call them advanced reader copies. But it's true that the version that you read um, probably still has a couple of anachronistic words because in one of the late. Um, so I, I'm I mostly write historical fiction, as right. you, as you know. And so I call it like, there are a couple of stages of working through a book. You write the first draft and then you go through copy edits where somebody picks apart, you know, little nuances and factual things. And then you go through what's called first pass, which is the first time that it's been typeset. And of course a book isn't like really typeset anymore. It's all done digitally now, but it's kind of how the book is going to look as a real book instead of as a manuscript. And at that point, that's when you're supposed to really just tweak things that are glaring errors. And I usually consider first pass to be um, my Oxford English Dictionary pass. That's when I go through the whole thing and I double check any word choice I've made or like cultural phenomenon that I'm referencing or like illusion. And I just try to make sure that anything that is in a historical moment is accurate to that historical moment as close as I can get it. So there are a few, probably a few anachronisms in the version that you read that I since caught on my OED review. But other than that, your version of a true account is, uh, is the one that readers will get to see. Well, the reason I bring that up is sometimes the end of the book ends up becoming the front of the book. So you talk about at the very end, your rowing background from our first oh, not rowing, a sailing, actually. Oh, sail, sailing, sailing. Yeah. I don't know why I put yeah. rowing. I did not know that from our, even our first interview. So did that yeah. help? Did that help in writing yeah, this book? It, it did. I mean, so I'm, so a, a true account, um, which actually has a much longer title if you include the subtitle. The book is called A True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. And that's a bit of a play on anyone who's ever encountered an 18th century document or manuscript or book. They always have these incredibly long-winded titles that go on for almost an entire page. And so the story in A True Account opens in Boston in 1726, where a young girl named Hannah Missouri has been, who's been bound out to service in a tavern. Um, She's a teenager. We never really learn exactly how old she is. She is present at the hanging of William Fly in Boston, which is a real thing that happened. And actually the, the, the examination and hanging of William Fly and his Confederates, the way that it appears in a true account is based on the primary sources. So everything that's said on the, on the gallows and things that happen on the gallows are things that really happen in real life. And so Hannah gets caught up in some intrigue and winds up having to flee for her life. So the story is set in the 1720s. And then there's, there's kind of a framing device at work in the book as well. But in answer to your earlier question, I am, I'm a sailor. Um, it's my only hobby. I have one and only hobby and it is sailing. And I live on coastal Massachusetts and I sailed as a, as a teenager, as a, as a kid with my family. And then in my 
20s in graduate school, moved to this little coastal town in Massachusetts, and I started crewing on racing sailboats, and I still do that. And so, like, I've been thinking about pirates for a long time. I mean, I think everybody thinks about pirates in one way or another, but certainly in the maritime world, there's still this wonderful romance that's attached to the golden age of piracy, which broadly speaking, went from the mid to late 1600s to the first two decades of the 1700s. And so I'd wanted to write a pirate book for a really long time. And, uh, and with a true account, I finally, I finally got my wish. And so it definitely, um, having sailing experience certainly informed some of the way that I wrote the book. Although Hannah, my character, when she starts on her adventure has no sailing experience at all. And so I'm able to represent kind of like what it feels like to be thrown into this, this kind of floating prison as Samuel Johnson characterized a sailboat in this, in this period. I love um, and what it felt like and how exactly how much she had to learn. Cause it's a very arcane set of skills. I think, by the way, I love that quote by Samuel Johnson. Uh, It's it's being a sailor, Samuel Johnson had noted, it was like being in prison with the added possibility of being drowned. I I love that. (laughs) It's true. It's true. That that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, By the way, so the the way we may romance pirates, Mm -hmm. I was trying to decide, do I want to bring this up with Catherine or not? Mm Mm-hmm. These guys are pretty brutal. Uh, oh, no, they're well, terrible. I mean, I think one of the things that I think informs our romanticization of pirates is that we don't actually know that much about them. And on the one hand, you know, I think there's something seductive in the idea of the phrase. One of the phrases in use at the time was going out on your own account, which is one reason that the title of the novel is A True Account, mm. because it has kind of a account meaning story, but account also meaning for your own financial gain, for your own wherewithal. And in a period where in the early modern period on land, everyone was governed by a very rigid class and, and often racial hierarchies and certainly gender hierarchies. And that was true in the floating world as well, whether you were in the Royal Navy or whether you were in a merchant marine or things like that. And of course, this is also a time of impressment where you could be sitting in a tavern minding your own business and suddenly have you know the Navy lay their hands on you and chuck you into a boat. And then you won't see your family for three years and you have no say over that at all. So many times people turn to piracy out of desperation, but also out of a desire for self-governance. But there is an unmistakable degree of brutality to it. And there is some brutality in a true account. But the thing that's interesting, and I'm usually kind of a PG-13 writer. I'm I'm a big wimp. I'm very squeamish. And yet in a true account, there's some pretty graphic violence that takes place. But the graphic violence is actually all based on the historical record. I didn't I didn't make any of it up. And the other important point that I would say um, that plays less of a role in the novel, but is important to understand for people who are interested in the history of golden age piracy is if piracy represents kind of absolute freedom and self-determination, albeit always very short lived because piracy was punishable by death. It was totally economically dependent on the slave trade, which is obviously the condition of the most unfreedom possible. And so I think that is another aspect of the brutality inherent in piracy that is largely overwritten or perhaps forgotten or or not fully understood uh, in the popular conception of how pirates were. 
I'm not going to mention it unless you want to bring it up, but Ned Lowe is mm-hmm. every, every all fiction right needs a villain. Right. And, and Ned Lowe is a pirate captain and, yeah. and, or at least he ascends to captain in this story and yeah. they capture a boat and yeah. there's a captain on that boat who didn't yeah. fare very well. And yeah, it's, ca- it's, it's, Catherine, I've got a image in my head. I don't think I can get it out of my mind of what they. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're, You'll have the, to take it up in therapy and imagine how I felt having to write it. So you're saying the torture really did happen? Yeah. Oh my god. Ned Lowe, Ned Lowe was a real person, Edward Lowe, and he and he, by all accounts, did have an extraordinarily cruel streak. I mean, there are some examples of of pirates who were similar degrees of cruelty. Blackbeard, for instance, was infamous as a rapist. He was known up and down the the coast of the Carolinas for his brutality, specifically to to young women. Um, but then there are other there are other historical pirates who weren't who didn't quite have that same taste for brutality. But a historian who I really admire, named Marcus Redeker, who was kind enough to blurb a true account uh, for me, has made the case that terror, the idea of terror is at the heart of piracy that uh, and and that that worked in two ways that pirates could be successful in their raiding through striking terror into the hearts of the ships that they were raiding and in return governments responded by trying to terrorize mariners out of turning to piracy so william fly the uh, the man who leads a mutiny and then is hung in Boston, which kicks off the action in a true account. Right. After William Fly was hanged, his body was gibbeted on Nix's mate, which is an island in Boston Harbor that still exists. And to gibbet someone means that after they're dead, you hang their body in chains and let it rot publicly. I didn't know we did that in our country. Yeah, yeah, we did. And there's another example of... Um, Calico Jack Rackham was gibbeted in um, in Jamaica and on a rock that's now called Rackham's K. So this was actually a pretty common method by governments to try to terrify mariners out of running the risk of piracy. And just imagine having to sail past that in and out every day as long as that grotesque object is hanging there. I mean, I think that would be a pretty effective strategy for terror. The, the way the book opens up near the very beginning, you've got young Hannah, which, by the way, I, I did remember this. You Didn't you say she could either have passed for a 14-year-old or even an early 20-something? So it's like... I, I make that case. Um, in thinking about Hannah, you know, she is she's living in poverty. She is malnourished. And she's in, and at one point she, she is sort of speaking to the reader and she's trying to describe herself. Well, of course she wouldn't have had a lot of time to stare in the mirror and look at herself. So she gives an account of herself that's maybe different from how we might describe what we look like. We are so accustomed to seeing ourselves. Um, Hannah says that I could tell you I was anywhere from 15 to 25 and you might believe me. And that's because she is, she's skinny you know, her body isn't as developed as you would expect right. from a woman who has been a young woman who's been well nourished um, her whole life. You know, it's quite possible she had not even fully gone through puberty yet because she didn't have enough fat in her diet. Um, and her skin, she would have been suntanned and she would have been, you know, she just would have, she would have looked more weathered, I think, than we would have expected of, you know, a 17 year old girl living with 
21st century safety and security. And so I, I, one of the ways that was interesting to me, you know, as a young woman growing up in the you know post-industrial period when I was a young woman, um, is trying to think through how Hannah's relationship to her body would have been different from what we're accustomed to. And so, and trying to think how she would have looked and how she would have read to people who were looking at her at that time as well. And at one point there's a scene where Hannah encounters, I won't give too much away about who it is, but she encounters a woman about her own age. who's had a completely different life. And Hannah is sort of staggered by how beautiful she is because she has been well-fed and she has been well-dressed and she has paid attention to her appearance, whereas Hannah has never had the leisure to pay attention to her appearance. And you gather from the way that we describe both of those individual people is that they could not look more different, and yet they are effectively the same. Just a quick sidebar. The book starts out with Hannah skipping work to go Mm -hmm. see this public display of a hanging and by the way, the the one of the villains, he even astounding. He says, "You got the noose wrong," he, and he redoes yeah. the noose. That really happened. That really happened when William Fly was about to be hanged. So William Fly was hanged with, um, I think, two two, two other it? men, uh, two other men who mutinied with him. And when they get up on the scaffold, of course, William Fly was a sailor. He says, "I'm going to mangle the quote," but he basically says to the hangman. Don't you know your craft? And he reties the noose to make the knot better and then puts it around his his own neck. And one of the things that's striking to me when I was reading the accounts of William Fly and that I make Hannah struck by as well is that William Fly refuses to bow before authority. He refuses to, exactly. to apologize for what he's done. And in fact, he his last words are essentially a parting salvo saying, sailing masters, mark this well and treat your men well, because if you give us poor usage, this is, this is going to happen to you as well. And the other two, they, they relented. They, and, yeah. and a Cotton Mather shows up in this book and, yeah. and, uh, but what, what shock, I, I guess I shouldn't be shocked, Catherine, but you've got the public watching this, like they're watching a movie. <laughs> they're going to the yeah. theater. Well, it's, you know, a lot of my historical fiction has been about Salem. And so my first big novel was the Physic Book of Deliverance Stain, which was a an account of the Salem witch trials. And of course, the the women and men who were executed as witches at Salem, only a generation before William Fly's trial, in fact, Cotton Mather presided over the witch trials most famously, I think. More people associate him with the Salem trials than yeah. they do with trials for piracy. Um, those were public spectacles as well. Um, hangings were public spectacles, and it was part of the way that the colonial government kept people in line, in a way. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you listening. Do you like personal finance or real estate? Are you itching to build wealth and create a better life for yourself or your family? then you need to come check out the Life, Money, and More podcast with real estate agent, YouTuber, and actor, Sage Weiss. This isn't your average finance show. We dive deep and do not sugarcoat topics around money and life. The Life, Money, and More podcast releases two episodes a week just for you because we're all about helping you win in this crazy world we live in. Come join the thousands of listeners on the Life, Money, and More podcast. Please tell me that you and I would not have watched 
Would we have? I just probably. I mean, if we're uh, honest with ourselves, we probably would have. I mean, part, partly because this is a time period where you know there's there's not much spectacle going on, but also partly because cultural mores would have been different. But one thing I tried to do, you know, Hannah initially is kind of excited to go see this hanging like everyone is everyone is sort of excited and everyone packs their picnic baskets and they you know they go and get they get settled they get their good spots and they get lined up and ready to see it and then but when it's time when she realizes the gravity of what she's about to witness she shrinks from it and she but she realizes she can't show the people around her that she is shrinking from it that she can't seem to be as moved by it as she is and uh, and I I would like to think that that's how many people felt. I don't I don't know. It's hard to know. I mean, I think there's a tendency to want to assume that individuality is this transhistorical construct, and that like you or I in Boston in 1726 would be the same as we are now, but in different clothes. But the truth of the matter is, our sense of self would have been completely different. The way we understood ourselves and our relationships would have been completely different. I mean, you and I are both constituted in a a post-Freudian moment where we're so comfortable talking about our unconscious urges. And that simply wasn't a language that was in use in 1726. And so Hannah, for instance, is living a pretty kind of rough and tumble life in a just post-Puritan moment. So she uses a lot of Christian references and rhetoric because she's living in this moment where she would have been just inundated with this stuff, but she doesn't really subscribe to it in the way that someone a generation older than her would have. You use an interesting literary literary device, and I don't know how frequent this is. I find it, I found it interesting. You have a dual timeline. So you mm-hmm. have, you have, actually you have the past and the past. The, the present yeah. isn't like the here and now it's 1920s, thirties. I can't remember. It's like but, 1929 into 1930. Yeah. And, and so one of the, the, the key characters is Miriam, her father. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then there's Kay, who is a, a student. Do you want to hit mm-hmm. those characters just really quickly? Sure. Yeah. Marion is, so this is, it's a little bit of a twist, but I don't think it gives too much away. As we were discovering Hannah's story, and then early on, as we're reading Hannah's story, we realized that we have actually, we're not living through Hannah's story with her. We're actually reading over someone's shoulder. And we're reading over Marion Beresford's shoulder. And Marion Beresford is a history professor at Radcliffe around 1930, who has her own set of cultural strictures and expectations and family heritage and like kind of conflicts with her own gender identity that are at play. And Kay is the young undergraduate who has brought her this manuscript, which is Hannah's story. And we, and soon, so the, the framing narrative is Marion and Kay going searching for, basically for Hannah's treasure to see if they can find it. And I don't want to go into too much more detail because I feel like there's some, there's some twists and turns and, and I'd like to keep those a bit of a surprise, but the book ends up engaging a lot with questions about authorship and truth and how we can trust what people tell us. Which I, by the way, I liked it. I mean, I do have a follow-up question on that second timeline. Mm-hmm. So I have a bunch of index cards in front of me. And yeah. as an author, you have, so you have two timelines. Mm-hmm. Do you have to 
post-it notes, index cards. Is that confusing? How do you, are you writing these dual timelines at the same time or do you want, do one and then another? I I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I'm, I've done dual timelines in other books. Physic book has a dual timeline and the daughters of temperance Hobbes, which is a follow on to physic book has a dual timeline as well. And I tend to, I tend to actually map books out in a spreadsheet first. Um, and so, which I realize sounds very unromantic. And people sometimes have this fantasy of what being a novelist is that involves quills and roaming the moors waiting for inspiration. And I wish that that were true. Um, but unfortunately, it really involves me and an Excel spreadsheet a lot of the time, just mapping out who is doing what in which chapter and what we know when. And oftentimes, um, you'll find that in one timeline, there'll be kind of echoes of what's happening in the other timeline. And sometimes those echoes are explicit and sometimes they're a little more implicit. Um, but in this case, once I write out this the, the spreadsheet, I will then write the draft in order. So I will write the whole book from beginning to end generally. And sometimes I'll have to go back and tweak something or add something or take something away. Um, but Somehow I never I never end up writing in just one historical time period. Maybe for my next book I should try to make it just one historical time period. But I enjoy I guess I enjoy the meta prospect of kind of what it means to look back at history, to sort of reflect on what history has to tell us. And that's one reason why I, I often have, I guess, academics as characters too, because they act as sort of a an interpreter for the reader as to what's happening in the historical period. I, I did like the change of pace. One last thing about the book itself, then I want to hit a couple ideas about the economics of pirating. Sure. The the ending, again, don't worry, we're, we're not going to... So I just <laughs> don't wanna, spell it. I just want to say, endings I bet are hard. I bet you had, well, I don't know. You may have had multiple endings, but I just want to say that as a reader and as a customer of your book, I thought you got the ending. I liked it. Uh, and no, nothing more said. But I do know <laughs> there are a lot of famous authors. It's like, this ending was awful. Why did they end it this way? But I just thought your ending, I thought you hit it. Now, I would love to hear what one of your, someone who reads a lot of your fiction, I would love to hear what they have to say. But again, I thought the ending, and again, I bet sometimes you sweat over the ending as much as you do the stuff I, in, in the middle. I definitely do. I mean, there's one one of my first YA book, which is called Conversion, um, and came out in 2014, I guess. Um, that's also sort of a Salem-y book, but it's from the afflicted girl's perspective. Conversion, I actually changed the ending in like either first or second pass, like way, way late in the game. I completely changed the ending. And I changed it to go in a more ambiguous direction. And actually, which I thought was fun. But a lot of readers, it turns out, found it pretty frustrating. They're like, what's the answer? Tell me the answer, you know? And um, and so that was an interesting object lesson for me, that um, that not necessarily ambiguity is is the way to go. And my other YA book, which is a, a ghost story that never uses the word ghost, that's called The Appearance of Annie Van Sinderen. Um, that ending is not ambiguous, but it is baffling that's definitely my weirdest book by like a long shot because there's sort of a rashomon element to it where it's some of the same elements are told from different perspectives within the story and um and then it turns out that memory and history are actually connected and so 
what happens can change according to how you remember it. It's a, it's such a weird book. I'm very fond of it. It was read by about 25 people, I think. Um, so yes, I'm I'm delighted to hear that you enjoyed the ending. And I did have to worry over a little bit of it. And, uh, and I had a very trusted beta reader um, read a very early draft. And that person was like, yeah, I think maybe you should think about this, that, and the other thing. And I was like, okay, you're right. And uh, so part of being a, a novelist is having to listen to what people tell you. I mean, I think, you know, being able to take criticism um, is to take notes and really take them is, um, is an important part of this job, actually. By the way, I should have been more clear and you should have corrected me or maybe a pro a little bit more. You could say there are two endings. Mm-hmm. Both are good, but there's one that I really, really, really love. Of the two, there's one that's like, okay, she, <laughs> she nailed it. At least it made it, it made it a good experience, but yeah, there, there are two endings, right? I'm glad. I'm, I guess, I guess that's true. Yeah. And, and, but there are things get surprising in the end of right. a true account, which, right. um, I hope people find rewarding and interesting. Be- before we talk about, and I got your permission to to do this. Mm-hmm. Before we talk about the business of of pirating, I want to I want to expose my Missouri hickness. Now I admit <laughs> I am a I am a sophisticated Missouri hick. So, mm-hmm. but a hick is a hick is a hick. I thought pirating was just like the Pittsburgh Pirates. So I, I love MLB baseball. Pittsburgh Pirates is P I R. Mm-hmm. Well, in the book, I keep seeing P Y R. Oh yeah. So is that the right way to spell pirating? It's no. That is that is sort of a deliberate antique spelling. Okay. But one of the best primary sources about golden age piracy is called a general history of the pirates, and it's spelled with a Y. And it's by um, a possibly apocryphal person named Captain Charles Johnson. And some scholars have argued that Captain Johnson is a nom de plume for Daniel Defoe. And some are, some scholars have rejected that interpretation, but it was, it was very widely published. It went through something like nine different editions in the 18th century. And so it was published while many of these people were kind of, it was current events. And so many of the most famous pirates that we know are actually first discussed at length in a general history of the pirates. So Ned Lowe is in a general history and Bonnie and Mary Reed, who are the two most famous women who disguised themselves as men and went pirating in Jamaica and who end up being pretty obvious kind of semi inspirations for Hannah Missouri. Um, They're in a general history of the pirates, Blackbeard is in a general history of the pirates. Hmm. Anyone who watched um, our flag means death Steedy Bonnet was a real guy, and he is in A General History of the Pirates. And there are other primary sources that talk about them, like, um, you know, trial transcripts or confessions or broadsides or things like that. But uh, my spelling of it with a Y is really a nod to this very important and famous primary source, um, which it's hard to read the whole thing. I mean, it's it's like over 800 pages long. So you have to be really into piracy if you want to plow through the entire thing. Um, and, and but know, it's a it's a worthy read and for sure. know the idioms and the phrases of that time period i bet make it a harder slower read so sure. you can pass on any of these questions but i, I want to try to get your perspective as as much as possible so pirating is a business 
is. Uh, you, it you've is, got risk, sure. you got risks and rewards. You've got mm-hmm. capital, labor, and tools. Uh, mm-hmm. These guys are entrepreneurs and they have, they have a mission, they have values, they have, I mean, they profit. There's, mm-hmm. you have to get the right crew, um, yeah. but it's illegal. But again, it, it is a business, right? We'll be right back. Are you interested in small businesses? My name is David C. Barnett, and I've been podcasting and producing YouTube videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses for almost 10 years. I'm a former business broker and have owned and operated several businesses, and I've been advising business owners since the 1990s. Each week, I create a new podcast which answers one of your questions, and I've always got amazing, exciting guests. You can find me on YouTube by going to smallbusinessanddealmakingpodcast.com or just search David Barnett's Small Business in any podcasting app to find me. I look forward to seeing you around. For sure. For sure. It is a business. and it, But it's interesting because what is at stake varies very greatly over the period in which piracy was active the way that we think about it today. Um, and I'll say that a lot of what I'm about to say, I actually have a, a nonfiction edited volume coming from Penguin Classics uh, in spring 2024 called The Penguin Book of Pirates. So um, a lot of these kinds of questions I'll, I address in that book, and it's it'll be worth a look for anyone who finds himself in the mood for the business end of pirates. So, you know, you, what you stand to benefit from going out on your own account, first of all, generally pirate ships were organized according to a set of articles that were based loosely on the articles of war. And they outlined what pirate crews owed each other and what percentage everyone could expect to get. And that included, um, that included payment in the event of, of mangling, which was a common risk that might be run you know you might you might be you might end up dead certainly but you also could end up losing a limb i mean most of the pop culture pictures of pirates that we have think about the two most famous pop culture pirates captain hook is missing a hand and long john silver is missing a leg right. and that's because those you know mangled bodies were very much of a piece of running a, a risky life like this um so there's some instances of you know a pirate crew like Oh, what was his name? Um, Henry Avery, for instance, was a real pirate early in the Golden Age. And he raided a ship that was owned by the Mogul. And it was one of the richest takes like ever recorded in the history of piracy. And he ended up, and no one knows what happened to it. He like absconded with all of this money that had been bound for Mecca and ends up hiding out in Madagascar for a while. And at one point, coins from that hall actually showed up in various parts of what is now America, like a couple of coins from, from that ship. And I'm blanking on the name of the ship, but a couple of coins from that ship showed up in the Carolinas and in Massachusetts. So people in his crew ended up disseminating throughout the English colonial world and taking some of the treasure with them. But then the flip side of that is by the time you get to the early 19th century, um, you see records of pirates, you know, in heavy quotes, raiding ships and taking clothes, food, fresh water, and nothing else, which would fit no one's definition of treasure. And to my mind, at least from a historian's standpoint, the most interesting question to me is, as I mentioned earlier, they spent a lot of golden age piracy was dependent on raiding the slave trade. 
And so I spent some time looking into what happened to human cargo when a slave ship was raided. And there, it's, it's actually kind of hard to see in the archive. There is a, there's an online digital database of every slave voyage that crossed the Atlantic and what happened to it. And the number that are officially listed as having been lost to piracy is actually minuscule compared to what other sources suggest would have been rational. And one thing I've asked myself, there are a couple of examples of the ship is taken and then ransomed and then the owners get it back and that's fine. And then there are some examples of the ship is taken and the people on board, the cargo on board, join the crew. So um, their Blackbeard, like a hefty percentage of Blackbeard's crew were people of color or men of color. Mm. Um, and William Kidd also ended up leading a crew of what at the, in the sources were called 90 Moors. So one of the most perhaps surprising aspects of golden age piracy is actually how diverse the crews really were. Like if you watch a pirate movie, everybody is white, but in reality, pirates would be speaking all different languages. They'd be from all different nations. They would be all different races. And in a couple of cases, they would be all different genders, um, which is something that I think is interesting to think about. But one theory that I had was, you know, oftentimes a merchant ship, if raided by pirates, would have no incentive to fight back because the the ship would have been insured. And so in I've, I've found myself wondering, and perhaps some canny graduate student or history graduate student would take this on. I found myself wondering if the, the insurance rates for piracy were somehow prohibitively high so that losses might've been hidden in the paperwork mm-hmm. as something else. Mm-hmm. I've wondered that a couple of times because there are certainly examples of insurance companies rewarding captains of merchant vessels for fighting off pirates. And, um, you know, I can point to concrete examples of that happening. And so, um, and enslaved people were no different. Enslaved people were, were insured, they were mortgaged. You know, the finance of slavery is a pretty big, a pretty big topic and a pretty big percentage of the economics of the 17th and 18th century. And so I have wondered about about the kind of invisible accounting that has gone into that. Again, insurance, it had to be high. Yeah, it was really high. It was really high. And I'm sure there are only certain owners of these ships who could even afford the premiums. And, and so, yeah, insurance, I, I, it's, you can do anything on Kendall. I, insurance is mentioned six times in the book. I (laughs) I have to ask her about insurance because I know. I'd not, I'd not I know. Thought about it's, this. It's, you wouldn't think that insurance would be such an interesting part of the story of piracy. I was certainly, I was certainly surprised by that. And it's very, um, it's very outside what the the romantic picture of of pirates is. But if you think about it, if you are if you are a captain of a merchant of a merchant vessel, and you've just got a, a load of lumber and like calico and and some indigo and whatever, and some guys come up. You know, is it more in your interest to, are you going to risk your life for that? Like for the most part, probably not, right? Exactly. Exactly. Especially I don't want to happen what happened to that one captain on the other boat that's in the book that I can't get out of my head, Catherine. For sure. Um, These articles, by the way, I don't know if Edward Ned Lowe wrote these articles himself or if it was a more of a democratic process. I want to, I want to read something you just said. It's, it's article number six out of 10. He that shall have the misfortune to lose a limb in, in time of engagement shall have the sum of six uh, sum of six hundred pieces of eight, 
and remain aboard as long as he, by the way, it could be she as well, mm-hmm. uh, shall think fit. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, now we already know he didn't, he, it was okay for married men to be off the ship. But then I learned through you that that may have been for selfish reasons. He'd rather have yeah. someone who's willing, you know, so, someone yeah. who's married may be a little bit more conservative. So, but this sure. one, it's like, th- this is like humane. So Mr. Lowe is very violent individual. Then you've got this article. It's like, th- this just seems very civil. What, I know. I know. And he also, Ned Lowe also had a soft spot for dogs. There was a there was a uh, an account of him. One of the best known real real life primary source accounts of Ned Lowe was written by a, a fisherman from Marblehead, Massachusetts, called Philip Ashton, who was captured along with his fishing vessel when Ned Lowe raided the fishing fleet off the Grand Banks. And at one point, Philip Ashton, who eventually escapes and hides out on an island before for a couple of years, if I'm not mistaken, before hitching a ride home on a ship from Salem and making it back. And then he sells a best a best selling like tell all about his uh, his survivalist tale, um, which you can read. It's it's on half the trust and is easily available and is a good read. Um, but at one point, if I remember correctly, Philip Ashton describes um, a little dog that Ned Lowe had had an affection for, who ends up like left back on an island somehow. And so somebody volunteers to go back and get the dog, and Ned Lowe puts them off so they'll go get the dog. But instead, that person who was a captive runs away. Like they take it as an opportunity to to flee. But I found it sort of charming that here's this guy who's known for his phenomenal cruelty, who nevertheless has a soft spot for a dog, so soft that he'll run the risk of one of his captives actually using it as an excuse to escape. And it's true that Ned Lowe refused to have married men in his crew. And the nominal reason given was that because he had had a wife and a child back mm-hmm. in Boston and and missed them and felt like anyone who had their family should be back home. But the more I thought about it, and therefore the more Hannah thinks about it, the more it occurs to me that that sounds great. But in truth, probably someone who has a wife and a child back home is going to have less incentive to to take a risk, I would argue, or arguably, you know, that it that Ned Lowe would be better served by having, you know, young guys with no ties and nothing to lose, that they would be likely to be more pitiless. And That's I, just my theory. I agree. I agree with that theory. Because uh, when when you brought it up, like, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's got to yeah. be, that's got to be it. Well, I read last year, I read Vanderbilt. Was that last year or two years ago? Was it last year? Vanderbilt came out in 2021. And I think, I don't remember when we spoke about it, if it was late 21 or early 22. I just, I read it at about the same time. I read the book about Harry Guggenheim and I loved, I love Vanderbilt and I can't wait for Aster to come out. As the time we're doing this interview, I think it's, 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 it's about next it's, week, next week it, it, at the time that we're speaking one week before Aster publishes next, next Tuesday. And um, I'm pretty excited about it. It's gotten some really great reviews and Anderson and I are really, really proud of it. And, um, and like Vanderbilt, it goes into, I mean, as you can imagine from our conversation today, I'm very interested in the tension between, you know, wealth and poverty and haves and have nots. And so in Aster, we really go into not just some of the Gilded Age splendor, um, like we explored in Vanderbilt, but also kind of looking at the other side of it and um, placing that in some broader context. So we managed to work two riots into Aster, which I'm 
pretty excited about. The Astor Place riot definitely shows up in Astor, and uh, the draft riots show up in Astor. And one of the things that we explore in that book is the way that Astor, not just the family, but just the name, the word Astor, like what it came to signify and all the various things it has meant in American cultural life for 200 years. And it's also very narrative and built around characters. And so my hope is that anyone who enjoyed Vanderbilt um, would also enjoy Astor. I, I can't wait. So I, I'm, I'm curious, is it easier? N- nothing's easy, but of <laughs> the two, what's easier to write, fiction or nonfiction? We'll be right back. Have you ever heard a new digital trend and thought to yourself, okay, does this really matter? Asking the right questions helps you cut through the noise and get down to what matters most. I'm Jim Hertzfeld, host of the What If So What podcast, where we discover what's possible with digital and figure out how to make it real by asking what if, so what, and most importantly, now what? Subscribe and listen, and together we can turn big ideas into tangible actions so you can get shit done. That's a, I mean, it's a great question. And the truth is, they're, they're actually quite different. And they're more different than I would have expected, given how much research I put into the fiction that I write, because I'm trained as a historian. So I take the historical accuracy very seriously in the fiction that I write. But one thing that's intriguing is that in fiction, you have a modicum of control over what your characters do. So my some Different historical fiction authors approach this differently, but I like to write a fictional person inside a real set of events and inside as real and accurate a world as I can make it. And so the way the order of operations usually is that I become interested in the moment in time, in this case, Boston in 1726, the end of the golden age of piracy, I steep myself in the sources that will tell me what that world was like and who some of the people are who lived in that world. And then I will try to constitute a character who is as accurate as I can make them, given the constraints in which they are living and my understanding of the world in which they're living. And then I see what the character does. So in a funny way, plot comes last. I go setting to character to plot. And in nonfiction, I have to go in a different order. So there'll be a moment in time that is interesting, say, New York in the Gilded Age, And then I will see what people have done because you see what has happened. And from seeing what people have done, I then endeavor to extrapolate what can be understood about that person's character insofar as that is possible. So the order goes separately, like working your way inside the perspective. This is sort of a creative nonfiction approach rather than a strictly speaking academic history approach. But you know, to try to work your way into the mind of someone who was a real person, you have to see what they did first and understand the world in which they're living and put those things together and try to try to figure out what kind of person they were from, from that information. I want to have one last question about the book, and it's more mm-hmm. for fiction versus nonfiction. I want to pretend mm-hmm. like there's an audience. I want to try to anticipate a question that could come up from the audience, especially one of your big, big fans of your other works of fiction. My question is, let's go back to Hannah, who is mm-hmm. our, our young protagonist in this book. Very, By the way, very, very likable uh, character. 
do you, when you're done with the book, is she now gone from your mind or does oh, Hannah, no. or does Hannah no. keep coming back from time to time? Oh no, I'm still very much involved with Hannah and think about her a lot. And, but it's, it's interesting, you know, I've had a number of protagonists now over the years and, um, cause I've, I've been doing this job for like 15 years now, which is surprising when I think about it. Um, and there's some characters I have a closer relationship with than others. Like I still have a very close relationship with the first, my first protagonist, Connie Goodwin in Physic Book of Deliverance Dane. And she was my protagonist again in Daughters of Temperance Hobbs. And in that book, she's 10 years older. So I've spent a lot of time with Connie, both literal time in my life and also time in her life. Um, and then there's some protagonists who I'm very involved with while I'm working on their book. And then I spend less time thinking about them. Um, I haven't visited with Wes Ackerman, the uh, main character of the appearance of Annie Van Sinderen for a while, but I'm sure he's, I'm, I hope he's doing well. Um, I enjoyed the time that I spent with him, um, but I'm very much still involved with Hannah. And maybe it's because um, I've also I sort of lifted, I lifted her name from a, a family story of ours in in my family. And that is that in the 19th century, there was a real Hannah Missouri who lived in Beverly, Massachusetts, and she married a guy named Edward Howe, um, who was a great, however many greats, uncle of mine. And he was a ship captain, and he was a clipper ship captain. And she, somewhat unusually for this time, she went voyaging with him. And so they took a load of locomotives around the horn, which is astonishing to me to even think about, to deliver to California. And then they were going to, after dropping them off, they were going to go over to, to China to pick up a load of laborers and bring them over to California who were going to be working on the railroads. And while they were voyaging from China back across the Pacific, Edward died. And then they started to run out of fresh water. And so the, the passengers and the crew mutinied and Hannah held them off with a pistol and eventually was um, kind of... They, the Coast Guard or the, or the Navy came to her aid off the coast of California. And then once that was resolved, she sued for Edward's p- percentage of the boat because he owned a percentage of the ship. And then she used the proceeds to buy a house for herself in Beverly, Massachusetts. And I stumbled upon this story having known nothing about it. Like when my dad gave me a punch bowl that he found in the closet that had Edward's name on it and a picture of the ship. And I was like, that's beautiful. I wonder what the story is with that. And very quickly put this story together. And what was funny was in one of the books I'd read while researching women pirates, I'd read a book that was a history of sort of women in seafaring in which a story of a Mrs. Howe had made it through, but they, there was no context for who she was or like, like the fact of the mutiny and her holding off the mutiny had made it into the, into the record, but like the surrounding story about her had not. And then she lived until the beginning of the 20th century. And then, and then when she, and I just loved thinking about like in 1910, a little old lady walking down the street in Beverly, Massachusetts had been around the horn and had put down a mutiny with a pistol. And as far as I could tell, she and Edward did not have any children. She remarried a dentist and then lived quietly. And then she, when she died, she was buried with him in Beverly Central Cemetery. And so after I put this all together, which fortunately, you know, through the, the magic of digital archives, I was able to do very quickly. Um, I went to the I went to the cemetery and I found where she was and I paid her a visit and I was just like I want you to know that I know what you did and that that was crazy that was crazy that you did that and um, and so I took her I borrowed her name um, so it's a different time period it's not pirates exactly but it is 
you know, I like the idea of women in seafaring doing incredible things that we are just, for one reason or another, don't make it into the archive. And, uh, and so, so Hannah, I think is going to be with me longer than your average protagonist, possibly for that reason. Several months ago, I saw a book title. I usually don't blindly reach out to an author and say, can I interview you? But the title <laughs> was so captivating. It's, it's, it's how to, how to host a two hour cocktail party. And, and, <laughs> and, and the author is, he is a, he, he sold a, a couple of million dollar businesses in some spaces. He's well known, but I, his title comes to mind because you've got to be great at cocktail party. These stories, <laughs> th- th- these are very, uh, very cool. Except that I'm shy and weird and have trouble making eye contact. So apart from that. <laughs> uh, d- ditto, d- ditto. Uh, last question. We did this the last time. And by the way, the last time we talked, you did mention, I think, is the show called The Gilded Age on HBO? Did I get that there, right? There is a show on HBO called The Gilded Age, which um, which is not directly related to the books Anderson and I, ha- Anderson Cooper and I have worked on, but many of their plot points are based in historical fact. And so um, readers of Vanderbilt and of Astor, I think will recognize a lot of the plot points because Caroline Astor is actually a character on the Gilded Age because she was the queen of New York Gilded Age society. Well, you, you recommended that series to me and I watched it. The Mm -hmm. only thing I didn't like about it was it came to an end. It's like, I have to wait till the next. And I, there's going to be another season. It's like, why did it have to, and why there have to be a stupid cliffhanger? It's like, I know cliffhangers are the worst. Well, rumor has it that Vanderbilt might be turned into a series of its own. Um, I have no further details to offer on that, but that is, that's the scuttlebutt that I've heard. You've been busy. So (laughs) I know authors are typically readers, but you've probably been more researching have you been getting to do much pleasure reading or fun reading not, the last year? Not a lot. I did read The Wager by David Gran, um, which is which came out this summer and which I really enjoyed. And unsurprisingly, it's a sea, a real sea adventure, yes. so it would be kind of right up my alley. And um, that was a really terrific read. He's an he's an astonishing writer, um, and really does the research for it. And I've also been, again, this might be kind of a predictable for me, but I've been reading uh, for my son, we've been reading a great illustrated classics kids version of Moby Dick, uh, which is fun. So I have one of the few almost four-year-olds running around talking about his harpoon, uh, (laughs) harpooning whales. Um, But inspired by that, in part, I've been re-listening to Moby Dick, which I haven't read for many years, but which is, of course, like the ultimate American literature, seafaring story. Um, and you can, I can always go back to that book. It's amazing. If someone were to ask me, Mark, what are your five favorite books? I actually don't think it'd be that hard. One of the books, it, it's either number one or number two. Mm-hmm. It's the endurance. Have, have you read that book? I have not read that one. I've read the Nathaniel Philbrick about the whale ship Essex. That is good. That's very read good. That one. And and I've read um, A Voyage from Mad Men by Peter Nichols, who is a, a friend. And that's that's the kind of classic account of the first Vendée Globe single-handed race around the world in which one man goes loses his mind. Um, anyone who's interested in sea stories, Peter Nichols is both a novelist and a nonfiction writer. And he also has a memoir called Sea Change about single-handing across the Atlantic after his divorce. 
Um, he also offered me a blurb for a true account, which was very honor, really honored me a lot. Um, but he, those are some amazing accounts too, but I haven't read about the endurance now. This has been fun. I, <laughs> I look, when I got done with the book, I thought, let's interview her now. Let's get her on the, on this, this well, thanks Mark. I really appreciate you taking the time to read the book and, and wanting to share a true account with your listeners. It, we're doing this interview a couple of months before the book comes out. So I'm crossing my fingers that this is going to be a huge, huge hit. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, but I will, I'll add for anyone who wants to keep up with me. Um, I, I am doing some in-person events for a true account. Um, I'll be in Houston. I'll be in Cincinnati. I'll be in Boston, of course, uh, Marblehead. There's a lunch thing in South Carolina and um, I think San Diego and I think a book festival in Florida. So any of your listeners who are scattered about, I'm mostly along the coast, I'm afraid, but, um, and also anyone who wants a signed copy of a true account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates written by herself, can order one through the Mysterious Bookshop in New York, where they will be, um, I'll be signing books uh, for them because they have a special, they kind of a specialty independent bookstore that, um, that supplies people who want to collect sign first editions of things. And so they can hook you up. If you want a signed copy, you can order it through them. And um, anyone who wants to keep up with me or my activities, I'm on Instagram as at Catherine B. Howe. I'm on Twitter as at Catherine B. Howe. My website is CatherineHowe.com. And I'm on, I'm Catherine Howe on Facebook. And I share sort of tidbits on all of those channels. You are a remarkable author. Thank you. And, I, and let's, <laughs> let's not be strangers. Let's keep well, talking. Thanks. Hey, if you would like more piracy, the Penguin Book of Pirates will be coming out in spring 2024. And I, I've got even more pirates on the brain. So. I, I will be buying it. Hey, Catherine, <laughs> take care. Thank you so much, Mark. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host. Mark Gandy. I kid you not, the pirates of old even had a compensation policy and had a story to relays the 10 articles created by the captain and his first mate. And the first article is about how the shares will be divvied up. And that particular article, it reminds me of a current day profit sharing program. These articles are clear on also what is allowed and what is not, and there are consequences. For violations. Hannah, after reading these articles, says these all sat well with me. And once again, a hearty thanks to Catherine Howe. If you want to check out her other work, I'd start with CatherineHowe.com. The proper spelling is shown where you listen to this podcast. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.